was talking with some friends of mine the other day and we were talking about bad jobs that we've had. And I've had quite a few. I've had some pretty bad ones. I had a job where I stacked concrete blocks all day for $3.50 an hour. I had another job where I stacked, I worked in a warehouse and I had to stack these hot water heaters on end, three high for $3.50 an hour. But I think the least favorite job I ever had was when I was about 17, I got a job working at McDonald's. And my very first day there, they gave me this scrub brush and a bucket of hot soapy water and sent me out into the parking lot and made me scrub oil stains off the parking lot. I did that for about eight hours. It sounds silly to say it now, but it was really hard to get a job at a place like McDonald's back then. I had to have two people who already worked for, worked there vouch for me, and they were worried about doing it because they might lose their job. It was commonplace to have managers scream and yell at you while you're working, and they would fire people on the spot. You know, you get used to seeing that kind of thing. And I thought that's just the way work was because my dad would always, you know, complain about his job. I thought, well, this is the way it is. But I flipped burgers all day and I guess I got pretty good at it because somewhere along the line, the owner started noticing me and he, he liked me and said that I needed to become an assistant manager. And at the time I was making $3.35 an hour. They gave me the promotion to assistant manager, but I did not get a raise. I made $3.35 an hour as an assistant manager. That went on for about three months, and then the owner decided I needed a raise, so they were paying me $3.65 an hour. But somebody got the bright idea that we should have a, a McDonald's softball team you know, to play some local pickup games. So they made these jerseys, and they were asking me what my number should be. And I said, I want my number to be $3.65. And I put it right on my t-shirt and man, the owner saw that and he got pissed off. I mean, he went through the roof. He said, why did you put that on there? And I said, well, it's how much I make. And he said, we can't have people seeing that the managers at McDonald's make $3.65 an hour. And I said, why is that? He says, it's embarrassing. I said, well, you know, maybe you ought to give us a raise so you don't embarrass yourself like that. And he didn't see the humor in it. I lasted probably four or five more months and I had a performance review. They said, everything was great. I'm doing great. We have all of these other responsibilities we would like to, to give you. And I said, well, will there be a raise going along with those responsibilities? And they said, well, no, you know, there's no money to give you a raise, but, but we like you and we like to keep you around. And, and I said, no, I don't think this place is for me. And I gave my two weeks notice and I went on to another crappy job. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville and I have my cat Frankie sitting right on my lap. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is W.S. Holland. 
W.S. is a drummer, and he's one of the architects of rock and roll. He was right there at the beginning of it. And he's the only drummer that ever toured with Johnny Cash and played on a whole lot of his hits. But you can find out everything you need to know about W.S. at wsflukeholland.com. We had a huge response last week to part one, so I'm really excited about getting part two out to you. W.S. was such a nice man. He, was, he invited me into his home, and he has a little bit of a museum there. He has so many cool little artifacts. When you go into his, I guess it would be his music room, you look on the wall, and there's these pictures of him you know, standing there with presidents. There's personal letters from presidents with him, and uh, he has his drum kit that he played all of these gigs throughout all these years. There's a zipper on the bass drum head that he would unzip, and he would go ahead and put clothes inside there and use it as a suitcase on the road, which I think is genius. But anyway, I hope you enjoy part two. Here's W.S. Holland. It's amazing you asked me that question because there's something really funny right now happening. This documentary that I'm telling you about, they're going to make what I want to do I want to find a car like we first traveled in. There's a picture of it right there, 48 Cadillac. Now, on that car, we used it for the old couple of years there. And we put an upright base in it. The big part went into the back and laid on the side and the neck between the driver and the passenger. Upright base. Put my set of drums, and I've still got the drums. Uh, Amplifier. Two guitars and our clothes in that car. How did we do it? It's amazing to me. But on this documentary we're going to do, I'm going to find a car of that model and that body style, and we're going to video putting this stuff in it and driving off. Just because it's amazing. Now later, when '56, we got a, a, a new car and we had a box on top. Then we got a trailer. But it was in 1965, after I joined John, and, and uh, we just still had a one car. Had a 60-mile Cadillac, then a 62. It was 65, we toured in the last car. We got a, a, a motor home then. And from then on, we had motor homes and buses and whatever. In those early days, were you staying in hotel rooms? Yeah. You know, I can't imagine you had maps there was no cell phones or anything, so you had to figure out where you were going to and how to get to each town. <laughs> well, that's another thing I think about so much. In fact, there's one of the girls with Cambria, works for Cambria. When, when they, they picked me up at the airport, wherever we're going, and she'll have that computer, I call it, in her hand. <laughs> and she's got to look at that. Or we can't get anywhere, you know. And and I just two weeks ago, I was asking the girl, I said, what would you do? How would you make it today if all you had was a Rand McNally road map? <laughs> and she said, what do you mean? And then I explained to her, I said, when we started traveling, that's all we had. And we had to figure out the road and where to go. And we got to a town looking for something. We had to stop and ask somebody where it was. It was just that simple. And, and now... I, I kid it now. I said, now you can punch a few buttons and some little bitty person in the dash of the car will tell you where to go. <laughs> Just like me and my daughter. A few weeks ago, I had to, I had to do a show in uh, Toledo on a Thursday night. And then in Dallas, 
on on a Friday night, and you, we couldn't fly it. Didn't, the flights wouldn't connect. And and my daughter Chris and, and me got in a car and drove to Toledo, right downtown to where we were going to go. After the show all night, drove all the way into Dallas with her sitting there looking at her computer and somebody telling her where to go. And I was thinking, back then, the way we did it, the young kids today couldn't do it. I guarantee you it'd be hard probably for most kids, teenagers or 20, 25-year-old, to go get in a car and go from here to New York or L.A. and find something downtown and not not have a computer just with a map. So it, it works the same now. I couldn't have done it. I can't do it now the way they're doing it, and they couldn't do it then. I can't imagine many people putting up with the physical grind of traveling in that Cadillac. No, man. We didn't know it any better. We left here one time. This was Carl, his two brothers and me. And we did have our trailer, but we left here in a 56 Cadillac in 1956, drove nonstop to L.A. That's before interstates now. That Highway 66. Now, we got into L.A. about the middle of the afternoon. Went to the, back then, there were buildings we played in. Now they're venues, you know. So so I still, we went to the building. We played the show that night like a dance thing. We got in the top car after the show and headed for Atlanta, Georgia. Drove to Atlanta. The only time we stopped for was to eat and get gas. Played a show at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, and got in the car and said, boy, let's go home, and drove back home. Never checked in a hotel. <laughs> so we... <laughs> Working all those years with Johnny Cash was, was amazing. Another fellow that was so different in so many ways, he, he would do things that was strange to, to me back then. and But every time he talked about doing something, and no matter how ridiculous that I thought it was, and some more people, it always turned out to be really good. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many things about Johnny Cash that we, we could spend uh, uh, six months talking about. But the Folsom Prison thing, that was in 1968. <clears throat> And we played several prisons. We started playing those prisons before that. I remember up and down the coast one night, we were, we were played three or four places and had a little private plane, and we would go from place to place. And if there's something about prisons that John liked to do because it's like he was far anybody that was kind of down on their luck. And, and, and another thing, for some reason, Every prison we ever played, those inmates were so great. It was amazing. Just like Folsom and San Quentin and all of them, I think the audience reaction is one of the things that made those records such a big hit. But we, we, we was going to do Folsom, and he talked about recording it. And I remember saying, John, no use we The money it costs to record the show at Olson won't pay for the tape. So that's how smart I was. It was the beginning of the skyrocketing. 
Johnny Cash to, to, to big time stardom. And, and now the next year, Joey County, what a unusual type guy he was. We did San Quentin and another thing happened that he made it happen and nobody else didn't realize it was going to happen. Boy named Sue. It was another big, big record and a big thing. It, like I say, skyrocketed John to superstardom. But show you how unusual he was. We didn't. I never heard it. Didn't even know it exists. We're in the middle of the show. If you listen to it, you can hear paper. He just come out of his pocket with this piece of paper and opened it up, and it was a. Well, later we found out what it was. It was a poem that Shel Silverstein had mailed him. He just started saying the poem. Now, Carl Perkins was with us then. Carl come to work with us in the early 60s after I come with John, and <clears throat> he could hear John just with, you know at the microphone. We couldn't hear, but we didn't have the monitors and all that stuff like we do now and did later, and the audience was loud. And Carl just kicked off a little riff on the guitar. Now, when he did that, we could hear the, his amp. So we just started playing something. When when John got through reading the poem, we stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I, the first time I actually heard it, we was back in the studio later listening to it, trying to get some kind of mix good enough for a release. We didn't get anything good enough to release, but we did anyway. <laughs> Another big, big deal. It was things like that John Cash would do that was amazing. I tell you one other thing that was strange that he did. That I, I, I just thought of this. Ring of Fire. I think probably what made the Ring of Fire record as big as he was was the trumpets. Now, one night, John called Jack Clement, who's – Record producer, he said, Jack, I had a dream last night. I dreamed that I recorded that Ring of Fire song that Anita sings. See, Anita Carter, Gene's sister, had recorded it, Ring of Fire, uh, uh, I don't know how long, or a year maybe or something, before, before John did. And he said, I, I dreamed that I recorded that, and, and we used trumpets, Mexican sound trumpets on it. And Jack said to him, John, what was you on last night? <laughs> but here again, we called two trumpet players, played trumpets on Ring of Fire. It was probably the beginning of horns on country record. And it was so different, another big smash hit. That's the type of guy John, John was. And he, he was amazing to work with. And I, I am so lucky and fortunate for some reason, people ask me now why, I don't know. But I was the only person in his whole organization, all the band members, even the uh, people at the, everybody in his organization, I was the only person that went the whole distance with him. And people ask me, uh, how did that happen? And I say, well, I don't know unless I did hear John say one time, somebody asked him why it took him so long. The first six years, he didn't have a drummer. Why it took you so long to get a drummer? And he said, well, 
I tried to hire some drummers to get them to work with me, but I couldn't find anybody to work cheap as WS did. <laughs> <laughs> so he was also kind of comical too. <laughs> Luther Perkins. It's an amazing story about Luther. Luther is probably today the most imitated guitar player of any guitar player in the whole world because no matter where a band is playing tonight and tomorrow night and every other night, half of them or maybe nearly all of them will do a Johnny Cash song and a guitar player will try to sound like Luther Perkins did. And the ironic thing about it, <clears throat> I'll never forget it. You, you couldn't make Luther mad. He was an unreal guy. And what he would do, no matter who was on the show, I remember this one time, Chad Adkin, Roy Clark, and God, the other guitar, Merle Travis was on the show together. And when, when this happened, whether it was great players like that or just, just whoever, Luther would get right in the middle of it jam session like backstage or in a hotel room or somewhere and I, I'd, I'd say to Luther I said Luther if you'll keep your guitar in the case except when we're on the stage won't nobody ever know you're not a great guitar player <laughs> <laughs> but there was a case of a guy Luther who became that famous and, and he died in 1968 and I I always said this from the beginning, and I think it's, it's actually not something I think, it's something I know. The sound that Luther made on that guitar is one of the big things that made Johnny Cash happen from the beginning. And <clears throat> passed away in 1968, and, and he didn't get to know it. But the reason that he did that is because that's all he could do. So if he had been a guitar player, like a lot of guitar players that plays a lot, and, and I mean really good, great guitar players, they can't play what Luther did. It's hard to find a guitar player that can play what Luther did. And when you do find one, it'll be somebody that's really not a, a great guitar player that knows a lot about it because he didn't know anything except what he did is the reason he is so great today. You know, it's an amazing thing. I, won't, I don't think about a lot of things until somebody asks me, but the, the Bob Dylan sessions, again, I didn't think a lot about it that night. In fact, there's a, uh, somebody came over about did an interview with me and did an interview with Charlie Daniels. And I don't know who else. Charlie was playing guitar on that session. When I, I think about when people ask questions like that, if I had a just thought <laughs> once a week or maybe every day just with a, some, with a yellow pencil and, a, and a, a blue horse tablet, just wrote a few words down where I was and what I was doing. But... That session, and now that it's all history and for many years now, that was another thing that for me to be part of is amazing to me and a big honor. But there again, the night it happened, the time it happened, 
like the Million Dollar Quartet Session. I didn't think a lot about it. Uh, I knew him, knew you know, knew all about him, but I didn't know he was ever going to be as big a star as he was either. <laughs> and and uh, it was what one thing you asked was in the hut. It was at the, the Columbia Studio, and Columbia had a studio downstairs, not in the big room upstairs. I don't know if it's still that way or not now, uh, but anyway, it was downstairs in the little little place we called it. It's the same place I think we cut uh, Ring of Fire down there too. We we recorded in both places. I, I remember uh, Orange Blossom Special was upstairs, but it, it was one of those things that happened back then that now it, it's really great to to even talk about or for anybody to even know that I, I was involved in. And, and later, uh, I, I knew enough about it to, uh, to meet uh, some of the guys that was in the Bob Dylan band later. But that night, it was just another recording session. The only thing that I do remember different about it than the uh, Million Dollar Quartet session Union scale was a little more. <laughs> <clears throat> was Dylan warm or was he distant or was he seemed like a nice guy to be around? Oh, yeah. Well, there again, I'm so lucky. I don't know if it was because it was the people I worked with. Or what. It seemed like the people that was and became later the big, big, big stars is the people that was the nicest. You know, you see another band member that might be a, a bass player or a drummer or whatever. They might be a little, I don't know, like saying, oh, man, you, we're better than you or blah, blah. You know, something like that. But the big stars, they were always super nice to me. Like, people like Chris Christopherson, Willie, uh, Merle, uh, well, all the guys that I was around, just I don't ever remember – seeing what we know as the, the big star ever be anyway except nice to, to people. That's the reason I wished I could be a big star so I could be nice to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I look back at the Johnny Cash years and I think about it a lot. I think about all the great times we had, the many things we, we did, the fun we had. And in 97, our, our last day we played in 1997, and he was getting so he didn't feel like working. But that day, uh, nobody was thinking about not being able to work anymore. We was booked. I'm trying to think of the name of the town, but it was up in Michigan, like on Saturday night. And he was we was going into New York the next week. Monday, he was going in to do one of the TV shows, I don't know if it's Good Morning America or whatever, one of the early shows, promoting and book he just wrote. And we, the band and me, was going to do the Letterman show on a Wednesday. And instead of uh, going on to New York like he did, we came home because it was on Saturday and we didn't care about being in New York that long. And, and I'd already had the arrangements made to, to, to go to New York on, on a Wednesday and do that show and then come back on Thursday. And we got a call that he had to cancel the, the show, the, the uh, going to New York, because we had to cancel that. And 
then we canceled everything. And all at once right there, uh, me or any of the rest of the gang didn't realize he was in, in that bad of shape. I mean, he went to the doctor and, and the, so they, uh, at one time they said, oh, it's this and oh, it's that. Nobody ever knew. And they, somebody come up with the name of Shadrager syndrome. That's what he's got. Well, I talked to three or four of my doctor friends. They never heard of that, but they checked it out and it is a legitimate. It's a, a situation that a couple of guys discovered years ago. Then he just got, he, he got so, so bad he couldn't work and canceled everything out. And I went up, uh, the last time I saw him, Joyce and me was going up to her brother's place close to Hendersonville, and I went by just to visit him, say hello, and he was he was in really bad shape. But, but it, he, uh, I, I had a truck then, and I was having trouble with the starter, and it was a new truck, and I had I needed some tools to do do some work on the starter. And he recently had me a little toolbox, little plastic toolbox full of screwdrivers and things that he bought at uh, one of the hardware stores. And he said, hey, take this and keep it at yours. And I still got that toolbox. <laughs> but you never think about anybody passing away like that. But that's the last time we saw him. And, and then I was, we was going to go back and, and visit him. I think on a Wednesday we was going to go. And he was going to do, uh, he was going to go to New York for some kind of award show. And we got news that he'd passed away. So it's one of those things that uh, you don't ever quit missing him. You, you don't ever get over. Well, thank you for inviting me into your home. It's a real honor to be able to sit here and listen to your stories. Well, do you think you can get anything worth it? Out of all this mess? Yes, thank you very, very much. Well, hey, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank WS for inviting me into his home in Jackson, Tennessee. You can find out everything you need to know about WS Holland at wsflukeholland.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, you can buy one of Amy's children's books, but anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.